0: Welcome to Tales of the Bourbon King, the podcast that delves into the fascinating, often dark world of George Remus, the infamous king of the bootleggers during Prohibition-era America. I'm your host, cultural historian and biographer Bob Batchelor. In this podcast, we'll explore the life and true crimes of George Remus, a man who rose from humble beginnings to become one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Jazz Age America but his rise to the top was not without its share of scandal and violence. And Remus's story is both complex and fascinating, but there are no heroes. As a matter of fact, Remus's story is so extraordinary and unbelievable that many people thought my book, The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius, was fiction. Each episode of Tales of the Bourbon King We'll take a deep dive into Remus's life and the historical context in which he lived, the people that were surrounding him, the cities he traveled through, and the crimes that he committed. This podcast mixes history, biography, and culture with true crimes and 1920s analysis to provide the full examination of the infamous whiskey baron and his epic life. From his earliest days as a successful lawyer to his foray into the world of bootlegging and organized crime, we'll explore every facet of Remus's journey and the impact that it had on American history. And believe it or not, we're still feeling this every single day in modern America. But Tales of the Bourbon King isn't just about Remus himself. We'll also examine the broader social, political, and cultural landscape of the era. This will provide a rich and nuanced understanding of the Prohibition era, and we'll look at the gun-toning henchmen, thugs, and diamond-dripping malls who made up the Jazz Age underworld, as well as the sometimes crusading, sometimes devious G-men and influential political figures who were tasked with jailing Remus, even as they lined their pockets with his illicit wealth. So, rap three times on the speakeasy door, Order a bourbon or gin, sit down with your girl in her flapper best, and listen to the epic life and crimes in Tales of the Bourbon King, hosted by me, Bob Batchelor. Appreciate you being here. Bootleg King George Remus believed that the 18th Amendment was an immoral law against the will of the people. In Remus's mind, any law that was corrupt could be broken and break prohibition he did. On a grand, gaudy scale. What set the Bourbon King apart from other criminals, bootleggers, and crooks who were trying to make a killing off booze boils down to two words. Kentucky Dew. Kentucky Dew was the name given to Kentucky Bourbon then and now the finest in the world. Before we proceed, though, a word about Kentucky Bourbon. We could actually spend years or more talking about bourbon so I'll try to keep the discussion at a high level, but if you'd like, pause the podcast here and go pour yourself a snifter. The only thing I like more than talking about bourbon is drinking it. I like mine with just a sploosh of water, sometimes two or three ice cubes, but I think that neat or just with a couple drops of water to open up the flavor really brings out the power of the drink. If you wanna mix bourbon, with something else, if you like a, a good hot ginger ale or to mix it with some other kind of ingredient, buy the cheaper stuff. Don't waste your good bourbon on a mixed drink. Drink it straight or with just a little bit of ice or, or a couple drops of water. Now, before I get too caught up in thinking about drinking bourbon, we need to get back to the topic at hand. The first thing to consider in the rich history and cultural significance of bourbon For the United States as a whole is that it's been produced in Kentucky for more than 200 years. While the ingredients have changed for many kinds of alcohols and whiskeys over time, all you have to do is visit your local alcohol state store, wherever you get your alcohol, and you'll see multitudes of flavors and cinnamons and fruits and every other kind of thing. But Kentucky bourbon is created from a grain mixture, that is at least 51% corn and aged in charred oak barrels for a minimum of two years. This is the law. This isn't just uh, my prescription. You may have heard the old adage, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. This is to delineate between the types of booze made outside of bourbon and the special qualities of Kentucky bourbon. Grain, yeast, water, plus a charred oak barrel, and the wonders of age. This is how bourbon is born. The aging process allows the flavors and aromas of whiskey to develop over time, resulting in a smooth, refined product. That great taste, that smooth, charcoaly vanilla, that comes in the aging process. And the quality of bourbon is further influenced by the use of high-quality grains and a careful attention to the production process. If you've had the opportunity to go to the bourbon trail in Kentucky and visit a couple of the, the many, many great distilleries, you've seen the rack houses, you've seen the aging process, you've, you've probably seen the giant stills. So much about the bourbon process is about quality and perfecting the recipe over time. The bourbon industry was thriving in the late 1800s and early 1900s prior to the passing of the 18th Amendment. Kentucky, like now, a major producer of bourbon, and the bourbon industry had a significant economic impact on the state of Kentucky. Of course, when bourbon was outlawed, like all alcohol during Prohibition, the moment that that clock strikes midnight in January of 1920, the distilleries are essentially worthless. They are worth almost nothing as a piece of land, if that, because there was no longer going to be production of alcohol. And if there were for medicinal purposes, that would be just in small quantities. So if you're a bourbon owner In 1920, a distillery owner, you better pray for fire or pray for something because you're basically public enemy number one the day Prohibition goes into effect. As you can imagine, so many distilleries were forced to close. Some of them, people just walked away, uh, let let the door hit them on the behind on the way out. If we jump forward just a little bit after prohibition is repealed in 1933, the bourbon industry was in a mess and it slowly started to recover, but it also started to centralize. So what was happening as a result of prohibition is that a couple major corporations came in and took over control of much of the industry. The independent nature was frequently destroyed or those independent owners, couldn't get back what they had previously. But over time, you can't dismiss the quality of Kentucky bourbon. There were enough people around that they were able to rebuild the industry from scratch, and they were able to become, once again, the bourbon capital of the world, based on the high quality and distinct flavor profile of Kentucky bourbons. Now, why Kentucky? There are significant factors to Southern Kentucky that make it particularly fantastic for producing bourbon. The local climate, the soil, the water, the use of locally sourced corn and other grains also is a major contributor to the flavor, the unique flavor of Kentucky bourbon. So let's take a second and talk about the corn. Kentucky corn is incredibly important to bourbon because uh, clearly, as we mentioned before, a grain mixture of at least 51% corn. So the use of Kentucky corn in particular is that it has high starch content and it brings out that great flavor because of the way that Kentucky corn is grown. The soil, the growing conditions, it's You know, our version of the French wineries and the wineries in Northern California. It's the perfect storm of ingredients, process, farming, care, proficiency, and repetition that makes Kentucky bourbon so good. So the use of this locally sourced corn is one of the major factors And it also provides the sugar that's necessary for fermentation. So it's a crucial aspect of the distilling process. It's a quality. It's a taste that really influences what Kentucky bourbon tastes like and why people enjoy it so much. So how do we get from Kentucky Dew to George Remus? The interesting thing here is that Remus, unlike so many other people who were trying to grab power during the early days of prohibition, Remus determined to center his operation on selling the finest Kentucky Dew he could acquire by any means necessary. And as we unfold throughout this podcast, we'll look at what, what we mean by saying any means necessary. It meant that Remus would do anything to get his hands on high-quality bourbon. But Remus took pride in selling the finest bourbons and alcohol that he could get, unadulterated, things that weren't going to kill people, not bathtub gin. But he had little control over what happened to booze once he sold it to bootleggers. They would come in where he ran a distribution depot called Death Valley. It was really like an an armed fortress in the guise of a farm where Remus controlled his main operation about 13 miles northwest of Cincinnati. Bootleggers would come in and load their cars up, huge exchanges of cash, and be off. Off they would go. But Remus had no control over what they did with the alcohol next. Many of these bootleggers got into the business because they enjoyed the money. They were criminals. They liked the excitement of outwitting enforcement officers. Some of them did it for moralistic purposes or the fact that they agreed with Remus that prohibition was immoral. But when there's so much money involved, the desire to cut that alcohol say a bottle of bourbon, a real bottle of bourbon gets sliced and diced up into thirds and then a bunch of fillers get put in. That would definitely change the flavor profile and what was happening to it. Um, But it enabled the bootleggers, whether they're big operators or small, to increase their profits. Some of these things that they added were drinkable, like molasses or a molasses filler. Some weren't, like antifreeze, industrial, industrial alcohol, other things. The liquor changed hands so many times that most people had no clue where it had originated. During Prohibition, bathtub gin, which we look at with such um, nostalgia and think that it was some kind of uh, party favor or gift, was quite possibly one of the worst substances. Many people found it undrinkable, which is why so many cocktails were developed during Prohibition. They needed to mix this awful gin with something to make it drinkable. And drinkable was the best solution. Some of it was deadly. And although Remus's competitors spread rumors that he diluted his alcohol, he asserted, For the rest of his life that he trafficked in only the best liquor and particularly bourbon. A scientific report from Philadelphia that I uncovered in a newspaper reveals, for example, that people were selling, quote unquote, Canadian whiskey, but they were actually peddling a liquid made, quote, in the cellar of some alleged toilet preparation manufacturer. When scientists ran tests on this supposed Canadian whiskey, one um, scientist proved that, quote, much of the liquor contained a large volume of poison. So Remus knows that people are doing this. It's in the early days of prohibition. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But the one thing that's undeniable is that they believe, because this is a constitutional amendment, that it's going to be the law of the land for a long, long time. The Remus gang made their reputation by selling the best liquor they could procure, but also Remus's ultimate goal was to control the quality of good liquor. He wanted to have a ring, a national network, and in the back of his mind, he hoped to begin selling American bourbon overseas, and actually become a legitimate business person. Now, how a person gets to the illegal nature of selling alcohol during prohibition to creating a a corporation, that's a gigantic intellectual leap. And I think that what happened for Remus is that the mountains and mountains of money coming in, millions and tens of millions of dollars in today's money just overwhelmed him. He got greedy. But he had a plan and he was willing to talk about it. One prominent journalist who covered the bourbon industry and covered bootlegging deeply said, Remus was to bootlegging what in earlier years Rockefeller had been to oil and Gary to steel. In other words, Remus was centralizing bourbon production so that he could put a monopoly on the industry and the ultimate goal would be to sell that to the rest of the world, probably a fairly legitimate business hope, but he got too caught up in the acquiring business and that was highly illegal. And it's like a a small piece of, of snow rolling down a mountain. By the time it gets to the bottom of the mountain, it's a, it's gigantic and Remus could not control himself. As the news of deaths, paralysis, and other ailments people got from drinking tainted booze spread across the nation, those who could afford good liquor searched Remus out. And he had local agents who went into Cincinnati's toniest areas and uh, places like Indian Hill, where the rich and the famous of Cincinnati lived and he had men who would deliver. In some some cases, many cases actually, local police delivered for Remus. They got to skim off the top, and that was because the wealthy were willing to pay any price for unadulterated booze. So this focus on selling unsullied liquor gave Remus a point of differentiation from all the other bootleggers, and it allowed him to coalesce a budding national empire and become the leader of an elite organization. So how did he get the booze? If all these distilleries are closing down, what Remus did early in the days of Prohibition is he began either overtly or secretly acquiring Kentucky's most prized distilleries, along with those in Cincinnati and in Indiana, because at this time in the 1920s, particularly the early 1920s, Cincinnati was the center point of bourbon making along with Kentucky, and they're very close. It's all within a day's drive. That's why Remus set up there. Even in the 1920s with bad roads, Remus could get around to these different locations and shift booze from one place to another. Remus's acquisitions included Pogue in Maysville, Kentucky, Old Lexington Club in Nicholasville, Burke Springs in Loretto, and many of you might know that Burke Springs is now Maker's Mark, Rugby in Louisville, Hill and Hill in Owensboro, Old 76 in Newport, and then he started finding out those places in Ohio. Clifton Springs, which is in Cincinnati, Edgewood, also in Cincinnati, and then made his way into Indiana. Squibb in Lawrenceburg, and also Greendale, which is there. So these many distilleries were just a part of Remus's empire. And he would go in and buy the land and the buildings and buy the booze that was left over separately. So it was like two transactions— But his goal was to get that booze out of those locations and into the black market. So some of this he did himself. In other cases, he had teams of lawyers. In many other cases, he did it anonymously. He sent in people, he used aliases, because cash was the king. And cash, the cash that Remus made from his early dealings, And the finances he was able to get based on his assets that he brought with him from Chicago, he had a line of credit where he could be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is like tens of millions in today's money, to buy up all these locations. So many of these were secret. And what one writer said, Paul Anderson, who was a journalist at the time, he remarked that Remus's empire, quote, was by far the most pretentious ever uncovered, noted for its brilliance and audacity. So what we have with Remus is a very wise attempt at buying up distilleries and getting booze into the black market in almost a perfect storm of supply and demand that he controlled. And he found many ingenious ways of getting the booze out of the distilleries, which includes siphoning with electronic siphoning machines. It included hijacking trucks that were transporting. It included buying up fake pharmacies and shipping the contents of stores across the country to throw off the prohibition agents who were always chasing him. The depth of the crime was extraordinary. And what Remus did is an amazing feat, but let's not forget, entirely illegal. He used his knowledge, which he gained as a pharmacist, to circumvent the law. He used the power that he amassed to buy up booze illegally, and he used the money he made. To buy an army to give himself protection and then also to bribe officials the entire way up through the Harding administration through Attorney General Harry Doherty. So Remus doesn't just have the Cincinnati police force in his hip pocket or the Newport, Kentucky police force in his back pocket. He has the Attorney General of the United States. And these are the kind of stories that we're going to continue to explore in Tales of the Bourbon King. Thank you for joining me on Tales of the Bourbon King, the podcast that delves into the fascinating and often dark world of George Remus, the infamous king of the bootleggers. Join me again next time as we explore the dark corners of the Prohibition era and continue to tell Remus's fascinating story. And let me take a brief moment to thank you for your support. We are all time-crunched and have a multitude of ways of filling our time, so I'm deeply appreciative. And I would be really happy if you'd continue following Tales of the Bourbon King. Feel free to reach out to me if you have questions or suggestions for future episodes. I'm available by email at bob at Or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. My website is www.bobbachelor.com. If you like Tales of the Bourbon King, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Also, you might like to leave a review on whichever podcast platform you prefer. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend, or several. Until next time, keep your bootlegging secret and your bourbon handy. Thank you.